Let's open with prayer. Lord God, I come before you right now and I pray, Lord, that you would help us see, Lord, your majesty, that you're seated on the throne. I pray that you would see, I pray that we would see how we should praise you constantly, how that you protect us in times of judgment, and how you have a kingdom prepared, a kingdom which will cover the whole world, Lord, in its final glory. I pray that you would let us see that, Lord, and and please help us tonight. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 8 now. Last chapter was the sealing of the 144,000, and out, out of that came a vast multitude of Gentile Christians from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They were sealed in chapter 7 from the seals in chapter 6. Remember, God is sitting on the throne. He's got a a scroll in his right hand, the Lamb of God, whose Jesus comes up and breaks the seals. Remember that? And we went through the six seals. Now, like I do in every session, let's look at the overall theme so we don't get too lost in the details. What are the three themes in the book of Revelation? And last Sunday I gave you a mnemonic device, a memory trick, to remember the three themes. The first was two cities. Well, good, somebody remembered. And the two cities are? Old Jerusalem and New Jerusalem, and the Old Jerusalem is? The apostate Israel. Israel, good. And the second theme is two beasts, good. And the two beasts are? The Romans and the apostate Jews. Right, and the Roman beast is the sea beast, which we'll meet later on, and the land beast is the apostate Jews. And the third theme is? Rome. Reigning, Rome. Reigning, Jesus has a kingdom which we're going to be in, the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. All right, so we now are going to the seventh seal. We go seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 is in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is the sealing of 144,000 to protect them from judgment. And now we're going back to judgment again. And the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, okay? Now we're only going to do four trumpets in this chapter. All right, so we start in Revelation 8, 1, when he opened... Who opened? Who's opening the seals? The lamb. the lamb, right, Jesus. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, I want to talk about this symbol seven. In general, in the Old Testament, seven stands for what? Divine, divine completion, divine perfection. For example, if we have seven days in the week, is the week perfect? Yes, perfect. That's the way God made it. So the seven spirits of God. Remember in Revelation, the seven spirits, what does that stand for? The Holy Spirit, because seven is divine perfection, and the Spirit is as perfect as you can be. It's the Holy Spirit, all right? Well, here we're going to look at perfect judgment. And we'll see here in Leviticus 26, 18, the word seven in Leviticus 26 is used several times connected with judgment. So this is going to be talking about the seventh seal, perfect divine judgment on the land of Israel. Leviticus 26, 18, But if after these things you will not obey me, I will proceed to discipline you seven times for your sins. Verse 21, If you act with hostility toward me and are unwilling to obey me, I will multiply your plagues seven times for your sins. Leviticus 26, 24, Then I will act with hostility toward you. I will also strike you seven times for your sins. 
Leviticus 26, 28, I will act with furious hostility towards you. I will also discipline you seven times for your sins. So you see seven is connected with God's discipline, God multiplying plagues, God acting with hostility, God acting with furious hostility. It's very clear here. Seven stands for divine judgment coming on the land of Israel. Now, when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, we're not Jews, so we don't understand Jewish culture, Jewish religion, anything. But if you were a Jew, you would know that, I think it was every day, that the priest had to go in and change the incense on the golden altar of incense. Now, if you recall, you got the, you got the Holy of Holies right here with the ark in the middle. And then right here, you got the holy place. And there was a curtain, a, gate, a doorway between the Holy of Holies where God lived and the holy place. And that, 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 in that doorway, there was a golden altar of incense. And the incense was burned, and the incense would send smoke up, and the smoke would go into the Holy of Holies. The incense is a symbol of what? Prayer. Prayers of the saints, as we'll see later. Uh, it turns out that... There was a, a solemn ceremony that the Jews went through in order for the priest to go in there and light the incense or put the incense on the, uh, on the coals on that golden altar. And it took about a half hour to do it. And I'm going to read you a quote from Alfred Edersheim, his book, The Temple. And I've read several of his works. Let me tell you about this guy. He's a Jewish Christian in England writing at the end of the 19th century, the late 1800s, and his books are fantastic. Have you ever read some of his stuff? Well, he's got one called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah that explains all the Jewish background of the New Testament. I've read that book twice. And this book is short. It's the temple, but it explains what it was like to go through the temple ritual. And this is from that book. He says this. As the president, that's whoever's in charge of this ceremony, gave the word of command which marked that the time of incense had come. So there's a special time for the priest to put the incense on that golden altar. The whole multitude of the people without withdrew from the inner court and fell down before the Lord, spreading their hands in silent prayer. So what you see is the priest going on, putting the going into the holy place and putting the incense on the golden altar, while everybody outside is bowed down, silent. They're not saying anything. And that's what John's referring to, because we're going to see this incense in. A, I think it's verse three. We're going to see the incense connected with prayer of the saints. It is this most solemn period, Edersheim continues, when throughout the vast temple buildings, deep silence rested on the worshiping multitude, while within the sanctuary itself, the priest laid the incense on the golden altar, and the cloud of odors rose up before the Lord. This is, I'm sure this is what John is referring to in verse 1. Okay, now there's another theme in this chapter we're going to see. We're going to see prayers going up, judgment going down. Prayers going up to God, Judgment coming down on the land of Israel, all right? We go to verse 2, Revelation 8, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, uh, seven, I'm just going to say the seven angels are seven angels that are there in the scene there. They're not named. We don't know exactly who they refer to. But the seven trumpets to a Jew would be highly symbolic. Again, we're not Jews, so we see seven trumpets, we think, big deal, seven trumpets. But Jews are completely saturated in their own Old Testament history, and they're going to be aware of things. It's just like Steve told me that he tried to be a Russian when he went to Russia. 
And he looked on the internet, oh, this is what Russians wear, this is how they do this and that, you know. And as soon as he got there, everybody started staring at him. Look at this weirdo, he's an American, he's not Russian. It's hard to get into somebody else's culture. I lived in China for 23 years, and I'm not any more Chinese than I'm, a, than I'm an atheist. So we, we can try to get into the mindset of a Jew here by looking at the Old Testament. Now, this is a familiar story, Joshua 6, 4 through 5. This is the story of Jericho, the walls of Jericho falling down. Notice in this story, have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear it sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout, then the city walls will collapse and the troops will advance each man straight ahead. So now for Jews were listening to this, or receiving this message from John in one of those seven churches, and a Jewish Christian hears this, what's he going to think? Seven trumpets? He's going to think, the walls of Jericho fell down. Look how many times the word seven is used in that short verse there. Seven, seventh, seven. So this is what's happened. A city is about to go down. The, the, new, excuse me, the old Jerusalem is about to be judged. It's about to collapse. So now we go to Revelation 8, verses 3 through 4. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. And one of you mentioned that the incense stands for prayers of the saints, and this is how we know that right here. Prayers of the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, Notice this phrase here, golden altar which was before the throne. You see how John is using Old Testament terminology here because we have the throne, that's the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. Then you got the doorway and the golden altar is right there before the throne. And of course in his vision we got God sitting on a throne and he sees... We, we can add this golden altar before the throne in the picture. We got the lambs there, and now we got the golden throne there with the four living creatures and the 24 elders around. All right, let's go to verse 5 here. Then the angel took the censer. You know what a censer is? It's a golden, I say golden, it's a a metallic bowl-like instrument that you put incense in, and then you burn the incense. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the land. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, the Greek word for earth and land is the same word. Gay, I'm going to use land because I take this to be judgment on the land of Israel. The fire of the altar now which altar are we talking about? Are we talking about the golden altar of incense in the doorway between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place? Or, or are we talking about the altar in the front the, where the animals were sacrificed, the bronze altar? Which one are we talking about here, do you think? Yeah, altar of incense because that's what he just talked about in the last verse. So the context tells us that's the golden altar of incense. So we got this angel. He takes fire from that altar and he threw it to the land. Now we see fire falling to the land, and we see thunder and lightning and an earthquake. 
flashing out below. Now, what is, what is fire, thunder, lightning, and earthquake? What does that stand for, do you think? Is that good news or bad news? Bad news. That's judgment on the land. So there's the theme. The prayers of the saints go up. Judgment goes down. You remember the, the, the martyrs before the throne in the fifth seal? And what were they crying to the Lord? They said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? They're praying for justice, and here's the justice coming. Here's the judgment coming on, on Israel, the land of Israel, apostate Israel. Now, this is very similar to Mount Sinai when God gave the law. Exodus 19:16. on the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. And then verse 18, Exodus 19, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. Now fire is, in Hebrew, can be translated either as fire or lightning. You think about lightning coming from the sky, it's like fire coming from the sky. All right, so let's compare the two. In John's vision, there was fire thrown on the land, and there was lightning. We see down here at Mount Sinai, lightning, fire. In John's vision, we see thunder. In Exodus or Mount Sinai, we see, do we see thunder? Yes, thunder. And lightning in John's revelation and lightning here. So the idea here at Exodus, all this smoke and fire and lightning, what does that symbolize at Mount Sinai? Judgment, exactly. Because the law, of course, the law has blessings in it too if you keep it. But if you don't keep the law, bad stuff. God promised, if you look at Deuteronomy 29, all these terrible judgments. The sky will become like brass. The land won't grow anything. You have hemorrhoids. I mean, every all these horrible things, you know. So that's what all this is supposed to symbolize is judgment. And those are fairly easy symbols, I think. Notice how at Mount Sinai, you have a loud trumpet sound. Again, we're talking about trumpets. Look at the connection there. This is, this is talking about uh, the seven trumpets that are about to sound. I, I imagine at Mount Sinai, this is the way I picture that, that the wind's blowing so hard, going beep, like in a hurricane. That almost sounds like a trumpet. It's a sound like a trumpet. And you got smoke going up at Mount Sinai, just like in John's vision. At Mount Sinai, you got smoke going up. Now here, it's not the prayers of the saints, but it's still smoke. So you see the whole... John is using the Old Testament, which illustrates the theme I've tried to emphasize is that when you try to interpret the book of Revelation, you look to the Old Testament, you don't look to your newspaper. You know, that's what you look at, the Old Testament. All right? Let's go to verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now, how are trumpets used in the Old Testament? Again, if you were a Jew and you heard a trumpet, it would have certain meanings to you. Well, here's, and I haven't exhausted them here in this list I'm going to give you, but here's some, to proclaim the role of a new king. We read in 1 Kings 134, there the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan are to anoint him as king over Israel, that's Solomon. You are to blow the ram's horn, that's the trumpet, and say, long live King Solomon. Some translations translate ram's horn as trumpet. I got one that doesn't trumpet ram's horn all in the same word, but it's the same idea. You hear beep. And that means the king's coming. How does that apply to here? How do you think that applies to what John's talking about in Revelation? Is there a king coming? Is there a kingdom coming? Right, it's Jesus. 
Let's hop down and take a sneak preview. Seventh angel. We haven't got to the first angel yet, but here's the seventh angel. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. It's about to be a kingdom established. The trumpets are blowing, the kingdom's going to be established. Another purpose of trumpets in the Old Testament was to sound an alarm. Here's Ezekiel 33, verses 2 through 4. Son of man, this is God speaking to Elijah, speak to your people and tell them, suppose I bring the sword against the land, and the people of that land select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman, and he sees the sword come against the land and blows his trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet but ignores the warning, and the sword comes and takes away his blood, will be on his own head. So the trumpet is, gives a warning that judgment is coming. Now, are these seven trumpets that are blowing, is that appropriate? Is God trying to give a warning to apostate Israel? Hey, you need to repent. Now, you recall the seals, the judgment in the seals was what fraction of the land? One-fourth or one-third? It's one-fourth. And the judgment in the trumpets is one-third. And when we get to the bowls, what percentage is that going to be? 100%. So you see progressive judgment is coming. There's warning here. The, the apostate Israelites had plenty of warning that they needed to repent before the Lord, and they didn't do it. Trumpets were used to call Israel to national repentance. Here's Isaiah 58.1. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. And declare to my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. So a trumpet's very loud. It proclaims that you're sinners. You need to repent. Trumpets were used to especially acknowledge the Day of Atonement. Now the Day of Atonement, of course, is on in the seventh month, Tishri, the tenth day. And that was the day when the one day the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and he gave atonement for the whole nation. And... It was a time, of course, of great solemnity and repentance and sackcloth and ashes, and everybody saying, we're sinners, we're sinners. Well, ten days before the Day of Atonement on Tishri 1 was the Jewish New Year. It's called Rosh Hashanah. You might have heard Jews talk about that here in America even. The Jewish New Year uh, was blown in with trumpets. Leviticus 23:24. Tell the Israelites in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you are to have a day of complete rest, it's a Sabbath rest, commemoration, and trumpet blast, a sacred assembly. And Rosh Hashanah is said to be, this, I got this from the internet, .questions.org, a wake-up blast and a sober reminder that the time is near for the Day of Atonement, a call to repentance and turning back to the Lord. So when Israelites hear a trumpet blowing, it means a lot of things. Maybe a new king coming, judgment coming on the land. Uh, maybe we need to repent. So let me give you a summary of all what the seven trumpets are going to mean. God is about to do to Jerusalem what he did to Jericho. A new king is about to be proclaimed over new Israel, the church. The old Israel is being warned of impending doom. The army of God is about to be unloosed upon Israel. Who's the army of God, by the way? Who did God use to wipe out the Israelites? Rome. And then God turned around and wiped out Rome, eventually. Judgment is about to fall on Israel, and Israel is being called to repentance. And so now we're ready for the first trumpet. So here we go. Revelation 8-7, the first sounded. 
So the first trumpet sounded and they came hail and fire and blood and they were thrown to the land. And a third of the land was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now before we get into the weeds here, let me say that uh, a lot of people disagree on the details of the, the parts of judgment here in the trumpets. Orthodox preterists disagree on details. Futurists disagree on details. Everybody disagrees on details. And when I get to heaven, Jesus is not going to say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant, Dan, you got them all right 100%. You know, so I'm going to report what I think it might mean, but I could be wrong. I think that in general, as we go through these trumpets, we'll see every aspect of the land of Israel being judged. And we're going to start here with the land, but then we're going to go to the seas, the sea, which is like the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea, and then we're going to go to the rivers and the springs, which are rivers, and then also commerce, too, in, in Israel. So we'll start here with the easy symbols. The first trumpet sounded, and they came hail and fire. If you got a bunch of crops in the field and hail comes, is that good news or bad news? Bad news. It's judgment coming on the land. Same thing with fire, let's say it's lightning. Typically, you have lightning with hail. Uh, is that good news or bad news? Yeah. You ever been out in a lightning storm? I have. Got caught out in the woods a lot. Man, I've seen it hit the ground. Thought I was going to die. It's, it's frightening. All right, so that, those are easy symbols here. But now the fire mixed with blood. Now, I look at a bunch of commentaries as what they thought that blood was. And I had an idea in my mind what it was, and I couldn't find any commentary to agree with me. And they were all over the place, so I asked Steve, and he agreed with me. So I figured out of the mouth of two witnesses... <laughs> Out of the mouth of two witnesses, it must be right. It's the way Steve put it is, well, if you're outside and the hail falls down and hits you on the head, what's going to happen? You're going to bleed, right? So I think the blood is just talking about the death that's going to go on in the land of Israel, just like the, the which horse was it? The red horse of war, remember, in the, the second seal. All right, so this is all judgment going down. Again, prayers are going up, judgment coming down. Now, a third of the land was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Land cannot burn. It's talking about the vegetation on the land that's burning, and all the green stuff burns. Now, what else do I want to say? Oh, this sounds like a plague that fell on, on Egypt in the Exodus, the seventh plague. Let me read that, Exodus 9, 24. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. So there you have hail and lightning falling on Egypt as a judgment. Same here, hail and lightning falling on Israel as a judgment. Mr. Dan, I have a question. Yes, sir. If there is, I don't know. But I will say, let me, that you bring up a good point, is I believe that this stuff is symbolic. I mean, in a minute, he's going to talk about a mountain burning and th thrown into the sea. Well, mountains don't burn and fall into the sea, literally. So we see John is seeing things in his head as symbolic of what's going to happen in Israel. But the thing that happens in the land of Israel, that's not symbolic. That actually happens. But now, whether we can pinpoint it or not, that's another thing. Now, I'm going to try in just a minute to quote from Josephus, the historian who, who lived through the Jewish war, to show how some of these symbolic plagues might have occurred in Israel. 
but I'm not going to say this is what John was talking about. Yeah, I always like to, to, to continually think of this revelation as being in John's head, and it's symbolic. And the idea is judgment on all aspects of Israel. That's as far as I'm going to go with it, as far as particulars. Yeah, that does make sense. Okay. Well, and again, this a lot of it is opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah, so we'll see. All right. Now, notice that it's a third of the earth that was burned up. Okay? A third of the earth. Remember? What fraction of the land was destroyed in the sealed judgments? The... Black horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse of death, remember? You probably don't remember, but what was it? A fourth, right. Now it's a third. Now what does that tell us? What does that signify? No, no, no. No, no, no. Somebody just asked me that today. No, that's not what it means. It means it's getting worse. Yeah, right. So, um, so then we have everything being burned up. Now, this goes to your question. I says, well, all right, did that actually happen? Well, now, here's a quote from Josephus that Orthodox Proteus loved to quote as showing how it was literally fulfilled. Orthodox Proteus tend to emphasize the symbolic aspects of all these revelations, but here's something that might fulfill it literally. The countryside, like the city, was a pitiful sight for where once there had been a multitude of trees and parks, there was now an utter wilderness stripped bare of timber. And no stranger who had seen the old Judea and the glorious suburbs of the capital and now beheld utter desolation could refrain from tears or suppress a groan at so terrible a change. The war had blotted out every trace of beauty, and no one who had known in the past, who had known it in the past and came upon it suddenly would have recognized the place. For though he was already there, he would still have been looking for the city. And so you see utter desolation, stripped bare of timber. All right, let's go to verses 8 and 9 to the second angel. Second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. Now, again, that's obviously symbolic. That's not literal. Mountains don't burn up and get dropped into the, to the sea. So a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, just in general, the way I interpret this is this is judgment on Israel. Uh, it's, we've already got the land, and there was two big seas in Israel with Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So the judgment's just going from one aspect of Israel to another. And, but before we do that, before we talk about what the judgment actually was, let's look at this mountain. Now, when you hear the word mountain... What does that symbolize in the Old Testament? Go ahead, Parker. Yeah, that's true, but okay. Yeah, all right. There are lots of mountains in the Old Testament, but in general. When you're talking about Mount Zion, you're talking about Israel, right? Now, here's some verses to prove that. Exodus 15, 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. So the temple was going to be established in Jerusalem, and it's called here in this verse, 
the mountain of your God's possession. Right? And, but even more famous than that, or more clear than that, is Hebrews 12, 22, which is one of, if you're going to study eschatology, you need to know this verse. This is a big one. Hebrews 12, 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion. Who is the you that the author of Hebrews is writing to? Who's the you? Believing Israelites or unbelieving Israelites? Okay, well, that's what I'm asking, actually. <laughs> I had college students who did that to me all the time. I'd ask them a question, and then they'd ask me to answer the question for them. That's a very clever move, actually. <laughs> um, the context is this. The author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who have been tempted to apostatize and go back into Judaism. So he's writing to Jewish Christians and he says, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, was he telling those Jewish Christians, hey, you're living on Mount Zion here in, uh, in Israel? Is that what he's doing? No. He's saying, you have come to the church. Come to the church. You have become, you've come into the church. And he explains it right here. He says, you have come to the city of the living God. What's the city of the living God? Remember the theme of this? The first theme is two cities, right? Here's the, here's the second city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And when we get to the end of Revelation, we'll see the heavenly city coming down out of heaven. That's talking about the new covenant church, right? That's us, the kingdom of God. All right, so this mountain here stands for Israel. It's ablaze with fire. What does fire mean? If you get burnt up, what does that, is that good or bad? That's real bad because it stands for judgment. It stands for purity too, but it's, usually it stands for judgment and destruction all right, so, again, let's look and see if perhaps we can see where the... Oops, I went the wrong way, excuse me. Let's see if Jesus ever taught this way, and he did. But I'm going to take you to Matthew 21, verse 19. This is during Passion Week. If you remember, Jesus is crucified on Friday. Thursday was the preparation for the Passover, if I remember correctly. Wednesday, he stayed in Bethany. But Monday, he went into the city, pronounced all kinds of woes on Jerusalem. Woe unto you, this wicked generation. And then, on the way in, in verse 19, he saw a lone fig tree by the road. He went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. Okay? Now, when I was young and I would read this first, I would say, well, here's the Son of God. He made the whole universe, and he's, he's ticked off at a fig tree. <laughs> I mean, really, what is he wasting his time doing that, and why is he writing that in the Bible? <laughs> There's got to be a reason. What, what, was he, what was it? It was a symbol. It was an object lesson. What was the object lesson? You, that's, that's the perfect answer. That's exactly what he was saying. No fruit's coming out of you again, right? Now, two verses later, Jesus continues with the same theme. And he says, Jesus answered them, answered the disciples, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, not only, but even if you tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Now notice the, red, what I've, the text I have in red here. 
in John's vision, second trumpet, the mountain was hurled into the sea. Jesus says, mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea. I mean, it's basically the same thing, right? What did Jesus mean in verse 21 in Matthew 21? Well, he says not only what was done to the fig tree, so he's tying this mountain being thrown into the sea, he's tying it back to what happened to the fig tree. What happened to the fig tree? May no fruit ever come for you again. Was that a prophecy by Jesus? Or was that a curse by Jesus? That's a curse. May it never be done. That's a, the fancy word for that is an imprecation. He imprecated. He, Imprecated. He, impre- he imprecated the fig tree. It was an imprecatory curse. It's hard to say, but you know what I mean, all right? <laughs> so, so he says, not only, not only this was done to the fig tree, but also be mountain be thrown up and hurled in the sea. Now, what was he saying? Hey, I used to think when I was very literal-minded about all this, I would say, oh, you mean I can pray to Jesus and Jesus will lift up the mountain and throw it into the sea? Well, that's absurd. Jesus wasn't talking literally there. What did he mean? He meant the same thing he meant in verse 19. He said, not only what was done to the fig tree, in other words, curses on the fig tree, you're not going to bear fruit again, but not only that, you can say to Israel, be thrown in the sea, and that'll be fine. It's going to happen. In fact, in the very next verse, he says, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, we always take that verse out of context, don't we? Oh, I need a boyfriend, I need a girlfriend, I need a job, I need some money, you know, I need an A on my next exam. You know, that's what we pray for. That's not what Jesus was talking about. We can apply it that way. But what's he talking about? He's talking about asking for curses on Israel, no fruit, and may the mountain be thrown in the sea because of their horrible, horrible, horrible sin. Killing Jesus the number one crime in the history of the universe. Can you think of anything worse than killing the Son of God? Well, if God's a just God and the punishment fits the crime, then that means bad things have got to happen to Israel here. So let's bring up the topic of Christian imprecatory prayers. Now, most people say, oh, no, 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 we can't, in the New Testament, we can't pray that. Now, David did in the Old Testament. You know, he prayed that the babies teeth would be smashed against the rocks? I've got an answer to that, too. Uh, But let's forget the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament here. Now, what were the souls in front of the altar in the fifth seal? What were they doing? They were praying. Yes, they were saying, how long, O Lord, before you avenge us? That's an imprecatory. How long will you bring, before you bring justice on the people who killed us? Here Jesus is saying, if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. He's saying, hey, you can believe, you can pray for judgment on these people who are about to kill you and who are about to kill me, me Jesus also. Now, this is off the subject, but in the Old Testament, David's imprecatory prayers, he was the head of a government, Right? Now, it's one thing for an individual to say, I'm going to bash your teeth against the rocks, okay? That, you would never do that because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, turn the other cheek. But if you've got somebody in charge of a government, I don't want a government that turns the other cheek. I want a government that snuffs out the criminals to protect the innocent. So it's different. How about the abortion? Let me, where's Jason? Do you pray imprecatory prayers on the baby killers in this country? The abortionist? Yeah. Participating in and 
And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's fine. But do you pray against the abortion industry that maybe God would judge it? Destroy it? Yeah. Everybody that's involved in it. The, the money, the, the abortion mills, the so-called quote-unquote doctors. Okay? Most people don't do that. Now, it might be a good idea if we started to pray against evil because evil is a, 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 a blot on God's perfect universe. It doesn't mean you hate the people. You pray that they get saved out of it. You don't, it doesn't mean you hate the people, but you need to, against the practice of what's going on, we need to pray against that sort of stuff. Because remember, it's the wrath of the lamb that fell on Israel here. Little Jesus, meek and mild, he's a gentle little lamb. But John calls, says it's the wrath of the lamb is about to fall on the, on the world, on the, on the land, I'm sorry. Now, talking about the blood. Yeah, here we go. A third of the sea became blood. Now, the way I take this, just to be safe, is I think it's talking, as I said, it's talking about different aspects of Israel. We've already, the land has already been burnt up. Now the sea, that would be the Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the um, Dead Sea which had a lot of commerce on it that the Jews were involved in. We get to the end of the book of Revelation, there's a long list of all the things that the whore of Babylon, Jerusalem, traded in. One of them was slaves, and and there's a whole list of stuff. They were involved in a lot of trade, and so the trade was going to be destroyed with the judgment, or a third of it was going to be partially destroyed in the judgment. And the living creatures in the sea, you get living, you make a living by fishing in the sea, and that's going to be harm. So that's the way I interpret that. But now here is an example of something that's in Josephus, the Jewish war. And many Orthodox preterists like to say this is how the blood in the sea is fulfilled, the blood in the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know if I go along with this or not, but this is such a great passage that it will get you acquainted with Josephus, and you need to read Josephus. You cannot understand the book of Revelation without reading Josephus because he describes the Jewish war in all of its detail. So this is near the first of the war. Thousands of Jewish rebels fled to the Sea of Galilee. Setting out on the lake in small flimsy boats, they were soon pursued and overtaken by the sturdy wrath of Vespasian's superior forces. Vespasian was the Roman general who was in charge at this time. Then they were mercilessly slaughtered. The Jews could neither escape to land while all were in arms against them, nor sustain a naval battle on equal terms. Remember, this is on the Sea of Galilee. Disaster overtook them, and they were sent to the bottom, boats and all. Some tried to break through, but the Romans could reach them with their lances, killing others by leaping upon the barks and passing their swords through their bodies. Sometimes, as the rafts closed in, the Jews were caught in the middle and captured along with their vessels. If any of those who had been plunged into the water came to the surface, they were quickly dispatched with an arrow or a raft overtook them. The rafts belonged to the Romans. If in their extremity they attempted to climb on board the enemy's rafts, the Romans cut off their heads or their hands. So these wretches died on every side in countless numbers and in every possible way until the survivors were routed and driven onto the shore, their vessels surrounded by the enemy. As they threw themselves on them, many were speared while still in the water. Many jumped ashore where they were killed by the Romans. One could see the whole lake stained with blood and crammed with corpses. And that sounds like the sea is full of blood. 
for not a man escaped. During the days that followed, a horrible stench hung over the region, and it presented an equally horrifying spectacle. The beaches were strewn with wrecks and swollen bodies, which, hot and clammy with decay, made the air so foul that the catastrophe that plunged the Jews into mourning revolted even those who had brought it about. So, maybe that refers to the blood, or maybe it doesn't. Blood in the sea, or maybe it doesn't. Yes, yes, ma'am. The Jews. Yeah, I need to, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I'm assume, I might have assumed too much. There's a very famous war that was fought between the Romans and the Jews. Now, this is in secular history. I mean, it's very famous. It's called the Jewish War. It started in 66 AD. It ended in AD 70 when the Romans burnt the city of Jerusalem to the ground. Now, Josephus wrote a book about this Jewish war. Josephus was a Jewish guy, but he, he had been raised and educated in Rome. He was, I think he was there as a hostage. Or a friend. He was a friend of one of the emperors there in Rome. And he was in Jerusalem when it started, and he was saying, hey, guys, we've got to surrender the Romans. We're not going to win this. And he got out somehow. I forgot exactly how he did it. And he goes over to the Romans. So he was unique. He was able to see what it was like inside the city, and then he was able to go over to the Romans and see what the Romans were thinking on the Roman side. And so he is the only account of the Jewish war we have. It's on the internet for free. Uh, there's a guy that translated named Whiston. I think his name is Great Translation. It's, it's interesting reading just for fun. Okay, so let's go to verses 10 and 11. The third angel. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the waters because they were made bitter. All right, the first trumpet was destruction of a third of the land. The second trumpet was a third of the sea. Now, this is a third of the waters, not the sea, but the rivers, the ponds, the lakes. Okay, now, I want to make a point here. This, this is one of my favorite verses. People always say, you've got to interpret the book of Revelation literally. The moon turns to blood literally. The star gets, the sun gets black, literally, you hear that all the time. I, when I was at the University of South Carolina, I, there was a young man that was teaching us the book of Revelation. All of us knew Jesus freaks in the Jesus movement back then. And he got to the New Jerusalem, which was a cube like this. Had a little tiny wall around it, huge cube. And it was hanging in the sky. And he told me that needed to be interpreted literally. I said, well, are you, I thought he was joking. I didn't believe he was really mean. He meant that. He did mean that. And I said, well, what about, I don't want to live in a place where there's gold and silver on the streets. I want some grass. And he said, I said, are you telling me the streets are going to be actual, literal gold? He said, that's right. And there is a tendency, it's, it's because it, there's a reason behind it. There's a certain theology behind that that tries to interpret everything literally. Well, here's my quick answer to that. A great star fell from heaven, fell on a third of the rivers. Now, Pick a, any star in the sky, okay? Think about it and say, it's going to fall and land on a river. It's only going to burn up a third of the river? I mean, of course not. So, so I might agree with you, but to give, you know, what someone might say is that it's a meteorite. I regret to inform you that I'm prepared to answer that question. <laughs> yes, I've heard that too. All right, so you go to any lexicon, all right? Thayer's, Strong's, whatever. 
And this is the definition, all right? The Greek word is aster, and here's the definition. Star. That's it. Nothing else. Star. And you tell me you want to interpret things literally? Well, how is a meteor literally a star? If you want to... Huh? But that's a different Greek word. It's a different Greek word. You look up in any uh, lexicon, it says aster, star. Now, if you want to be literal about it, I'll be literal. It literally means star. <laughs> How does a star fall on the earth and not burn it all up? In fact, the whole planet would burn up before the star even got here. All right. So, we see the name of this star is Wormwood. But before we get there, let's look at the great star falling from heaven. That phrase, this comes out of Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Now, in Isaiah 14, Isaiah is prophesying against Babylon. Babylon, of course, is the old ancient empire. started in 605 when it beat the Assyrians. I think it was 605. And then it destroyed the, the Israelites in 586 B.C. And then the Persians took it out in 539 B.C. So about 150 years, big famous empire. And Isaiah is prophesying against it. And he calls the old Babylon a star. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. In other words, he's prophesying that the Persians are going to wipe them out. Look how close that is to what the third angel, what John says about the third angel. A great star fell from heaven. Star, you have fallen from the heavens. That's so close, it's not a coincidence. And then look at the judgment that God pronounces on the old Babylon. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest cloud. I will make myself like the most high but you will be brought down to Sheol in the deepest regions of the pit. In other words, you're going to be destroyed. So that's what we talk about here. We're talking about Israel being destroyed. Because the Israel is the new Babylon. The whore of Babylon. When we get to chapter 13, we'll talk about the whore of Babylon. Let's talk about apostate Israel. Now this wormwood. What is wormwood? Let's see what's next here. Wormwood. Wormwood was an old... An old it was a spice... An aromatic, I say a spice, I don't know if you call it a spice, it was an herb, let's put it that way, an herb. If you ate it, it was very, very bitter and pungent, powerful. And in the Old Testament, it meant bitterness. For example, in the law of Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 20, so that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. So the sin, the idolatry, uh, that would come into the Israelites was compared to poison fruit and wormwood, which just means bitterness, okay? The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him. The anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under the heavens. So you see, bitterness representing idolatry is going to get judged, in verse 20, wiped out. That's what we're talking about here. That's what John's talking about, the the sin of the Israelites is going to get wiped out because their sin is like bitter wormwood. So let's go to Revelation 18, 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Now before I get into what that means here, uh, let's look at how you cannot take this literally. Have you ever seen a day 
that the sun came up and it only and the day and the sun only shone for a third of the day and then it got excuse me it only it was dark for a third of the day and then only shone for two thirds of the day is that possible? The sun would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it. A third of the day, the sun would not shine. Have you ever seen a day where a third of it, where the sun doesn't shine, and all of a sudden the sun turns back on for two-thirds of the day? Is that possible? I don't think so. Not any... Yeah, I guess it could be that. But I don't think so. Because this, these, what I call decreation rhetoric, or what some theologian calls decreation rhetoric, I like to call lights-out rhetoric. It's everywhere in the Bible. It's in the Olivet Discourse. We've already seen it in the Sixth Seal. Well, yeah, and there's no way to have a third of the stars go away if you can't see any of them. Like and there you go. That was the answer I was looking for. I appreciate you helping me with that. That's perfect. Eclipses are only dark on a certain day. All right. This is not talking about the whole earth, in my opinion. It's talking about the land of Israel. But, but there's no evidence of any eclipses and all happening during the Jewish war. Or during any of that time, during Pentecost. Remember, Peter said at Pentecost the moon will be turned to blood. And the star, I think he said the sun will be darkened and so forth. He was just using that type of language, quoting Joel, but that, it didn't happen. This is great. I don't know astronomy. It boggles my mind. So that's good. I believe you. And I think that's, that's great. All right. So we got the sun going dark. Now look at Isaiah 13. This is Isaiah still prophesying against the old Babylon. And, well, let me read it. Look, the day of the Lord is coming. First of all, day of the Lord. Does that always refer to the Jesus' second coming at the end of time? Yes or no? No, it does not. It's, it often refers to judgment on nations. And here it refers to the day of the Lord coming on Babylon, the day of judgment for the old Babylon. Cruel with rage and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and destroy the sinners on it. And by the way, that could be land also, the land of Babylon. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. Now look at how close that is. Here's the new Babylon, the whore of Babylon, Israel, its sun will go dark. Down here, the old Babylon, the sun will be dark. The moon will be darkened. In the old Babylon, the moon will not shine. Uh, in the new Babylon, apostate Israel, the stars were struck so the third would be darkened. In the old Babylon, the stars will not give their light. Okay, I think that's it, isn't it? Yeah. So the parallel there is very clear. And again, I've got a list of, of scriptures this long about prophets talking just like that. And in most of them, you can't say it's volcanic ash, and you can't say that it's an eclipse because there's never been any evidence. They've got astronomical evidence all the way back for thousands of years B.C. because everybody always likes to look at the stars. It's not there. It's not meant to be taken literally. Well, what does it mean to symbolize? When this lights out rhetoric, what does it symbolize? In the Old Testament, what did this symbolize here in Isaiah 13? Judgment. 
judgment on Babylon and its judgment of such a degree that it's this regime change. The old kingdom goes down, is destroyed, and the new kingdom comes up. So here John is saying the old kingdom is going down, the new kingdom's coming up. I'm almost finished here. Revelation 8:13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the land, because of the remaining blast of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, an eagle is a symbol of destruction. I've got a couple of quotes here from Hosea 8:1 and Habakkuk 1:8. Uh, that show that when you see an eagle coming, because eagle can also be translated as vulture. If you think about it, a vulture looks like an eagle except he's ugly, and an eagle looks like a vulture except he's pretty. Same Greek word, actually, and this is same thing. So you could translate that. I looked and heard a vulture flying in midair. What do vultures do? They come down and they eat dead things. Well, Israel's dying. The vulture's coming. The whoa, 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 that stands for the last three trumpets, which we will get to next Sunday. Matthew 24, 28, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said concerning Israel, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. The Holman Christian Study Bible actually translates the word eagle as vultures there. Some translations say eagle. But the idea is you've got something that's dead, the birds come around and get it. And the old Israel was dead, the Romans are coming around, circling around, and about to, get, about to eat up Israel, if you will. Now, if you translate that as eagle, some commentators say, this refers to the Romans coming in and getting the old Israel. Because what did the Romans have on their standards? Eagles. With the pendant hanging down, they had eagles up here. Now, I'm almost finished here. I'm sorry I'm running a little bit late here. I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven. Let's focus on that mid-heaven. Whoa, whoa, whoa for mid-heaven with this eagle. Let's look ahead to Revelation 14:6. And I saw another angel, not an eagle, but an angel flying in mid-heaven, in the sky, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the, on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So we got judgment coming down on old Israel. we got the gospel going out to the whole world. And that's one of the themes of Revelation. If you look at it long enough, you'll see that that's what the whole book is about. The gospel, the kingdom spreading out all over the world. But Israel's got to be judged before it happens. Lord God, I pray that you will take all this. I know the book of Revelation is a hard book, Lord, but I pray that we won't get lost in the, in the trees and we'll see the forest, Lord. We'll see your overall purpose, which is to encourage us in the midst of persecution and that you will not let us go down, Lord, no matter what happens, that your kingdom will be established and there's nothing, no evil government, no evil antichrist, no evil anybody it's going to stop your kingdom from spreading. I pray that you will help us continue to do our part to spread uh, the kingdom. And Lord, we do pray against all the evil forces in this world that will that persecute people in your church and, and harm your beloved children, Lord. I, we pray that you would hold them back, Lord. Hold that, uh, judge the evil that's in the world so that your righteousness will prevail. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.